Hello, I'm Catherine Carr, producer of Talking Politics. Many thanks for the questions we've had about this series of History of Ideas and for all the feedback. I'm going to put some of these questions to David, and I'm sorry in advance if we don't have time to get to yours, but we've picked what we hope is a representative sample. So here are a couple of general questions about this series to start with. So first of all, how do you select which thinkers to talk about? And for each thinker, how do you choose one work to focus on? A lot of these thinkers are people I've known for a while. I mean, not known personally, but I've taught. I'm familiar with these books, but not all of them. So for this series, I wanted to do a few that I'd never read before, either because they were recommended or because I felt they were books I ought to have read. And it was a bit of shame never to have read them. So this time there were three that I'd never read before. Frederick Douglass, My Bondage and My Freedom, Samuel Butler, Erewhon, and I'm ashamed to say I'd never read Simone de Beauvoir, The Second Sex. And I think those were probably the three I most enjoyed doing because they're great books and I was delighted to have read them. But I also tried to pick authors that there's not a single story in this series. It doesn't track a, a single narrative arc, but where there are connections where it's possible at least to join some of the thoughts together and In each case, for each individual author in each book, the way I try and do it is to think whether it's possible to tell a story about the book. So one way to answer this question is to say I do try to pick books where either the book has a story in it. With Rousseau, I picked the discourse on inequality rather than the social contract because the discourse on inequality is a story. It's not just a history. It's a kind of narrative of the human experience Samuel Butler's Erewhon is a story. It's a it's a fantasy travelogue. Frederick Douglass, it's it's his autobiography. So either the book is a story or some of them clearly aren't. Bentham's introduction to morals and legislation is absolutely not a bedtime story. But then the life has a story in it. I mean, Bentham's life or a book like Nozick's Anarchy, State and Utopia, even though it's very abstract, very philosophical, it does follow a narrative arc. There's a way of talking about it and thinking about it where the ideas follow from each other because it's like there's a beginning, a middle and an end. And because when I do these talks, I try and do them, I write them out, but then I try and put my notes away so that I can sort of think and talk at the same time. And it's so much easier to do it if the book that I'm talking about or the person I'm talking about is someone where in my head there's a beginning, a middle and an end. So that that for me is the absolutely most important thing. There's got to be a story in there. Second question. How do these authors' claims to pull the mask off politics compare with Hobbes's view of the state as an artificial man? So did the series two thinkers want to expose the artificial state as a mere mask or expose how society really works in order to build a better artifice? That's a really good question. It's quite a hard question. And it does make me think that these two series, the first and the second of History of Ideas, they're not that distinct. I tried to suggest the first one was about building the artificial state and and the various ways that people have done that and criticized it. And the second one was more about authors who are unmaskers, as I call them. But to be honest, Hobbes is a bit of an unmasker. He thought he was seeing through the nonsense of his time, all the religion and superstition. He was trying to cut through that. And some of the authors I talk about in this series are like Hobbes, trying to build an artificial version of politics. Rousseau certainly was, as I suggested. 
in the talk on Rousseau, there's not a huge difference, certainly not in the way that it's often presented, between Hobbes and Rousseau. But I've been thinking about this a bit recently. I didn't really say it when I was talking about Hobbes, but I think one of the differences is there's a paradox of a kind in Hobbes's approach to politics, which is he wants to build this artificial construct, which is the modern state. So it's non-natural, it's human-made. We have to build it and in a way contrive it. And a word for it is it's a kind of contrivance. But then he wants it to become stable enough and familiar enough that we forget about it. And the paradox is what we then do is we naturalize it. We take it for granted. We assume it's not something that we built. We assume it's something that's either always existed or is inevitable, that we have no way out of it or around it. And I think a lot of the authors I was talking about in this series are pushing back against that. The thing that they're really suspicious of is human constructs, human contrivances, artificial creations that have come to seem natural because they're successful, because they work when the machine works. We tend to take it for granted. And the danger, as they see it, is taking for granted things that we built and we can unbuild. And because we built them, we need to be aware that we're also responsible for them. And that, in a way, is the difference. It's a testament to the success of the Hobbes project that it has, for many of us, come to seem like a natural thing and not a contrivance to live under states. It's just the way the world works, to live with this way of doing politics. And in this series, I think there is more of an emphasis on trying to see through that. That's how I'd characterize the difference, even though there are lots of ways in which these writers overlap and they are trying to rebuild different artificial versions of politics. But they're so suspicious of the things that we take for granted. And in that, I think Hobbes is on the other side. Okay, now some questions on particular authors. We don't have time to cover them all, and I'm sorry, but these are the ones who seem to get the most attention. So first of all, can Rousseau's evolutionary theory of inequality, say from the moment people settled or formed reasonable coherent societies, be backed up by empirical or historical research? That question is a bit above my pay grade in that (laughs) lots of people have written about this. There are libraries full of books about anthropology and deep sociology and the history of how human beings have evolved. So I'm not qualified to answer this question in detail, but I can give a yes-no answer, which is no. I mean, it's not. I think it's fair to say that recent social and historical evolutionary science does not suggest that Rousseau somehow got it right. And for anyone who's read Rousseau's discourse, he's certainly trying to base it on contemporary science. So the book has these extraordinary footnotes about a third of the length of the book of these footnotes in which he's either trying to justify it or settle scores, but also hook it on to research of people who've just come back from traveling to exotic parts of the world. It is all a bit exotic by 21st century standards. You know, it's othering human beings who aren't like white Western Europeans. But so much of it is clearly hopelessly out of date. And yet, and yet, I would say that There are aspects of Rousseau's argument that have stood up. So what hasn't stood up in broad terms is, I think, the idea that before sort of the fall, before we became social creatures living in settled communities, life was peaceful. There's lots of historical anthropological evidence that hunter-gatherer societies were pretty violent. So that's not Rousseauan. But Rousseau's idea that something shifted in his words, with the inventions of agriculture and metallurgy, the agricultural revolution. So think of a very contemporary book based on the latest social science, in a way, Yuval Harari's Sapiens, which argues that the great revolution post the birth of Homo sapiens was about 10,000 years ago, 
when we settled as agricultural, early proto-agricultural communities. And out of that, you get the beginnings of hierarchy and structure and politics. And that's Rousseau's insight too, that when human beings settle in one place and they establish time horizons, which mean they have to plan for the future around food and subsistence, that will produce hierarchies of power in which much of the power is concealed behind some kind of spurious justification. And that from that point on, each extra layer of settling, of organizing, of arranging human communities around rules and constitutions and political settlements adds an extra layer of obfuscation to what power really is. So with each new settling of human arrangements, Rousseau thought there was another layer of the con, of the trick, where the people with the power try to justify it in terms that obscure its hierarchical arbitrary nature and try and dress it up as something just or fair or necessary or sufficient. And I don't think he's wrong about that. So there's lots of ways of challenging him on all of the details and indeed on much of the chronology of it. But the idea that with each settling of human community, there is at least the potential for another level of confusion about what power really is. I don't think that's been blown out of the water by contemporary social science. We should say at this moment that there are reading lists to accompany every episode from both series of History of Ideas, and you can look on the pages at talkingpoliticspodcast.com to find those. So the second question, rather than Boris Johnson being seen as a libertarian, do his plans for ending the current lockdown show him to be more the ultimate Benthamite utilitarian favouring the greatest good but for the greatest number, but knowing that possibly tens of thousands more will have to die to achieve this. I love the way these questions just <laughs> jump across completely different topics. That's quite a good sort of Dominic Cummingsy question. Uh, it slightly depends what you think Boris Johnson's intentions are. But what I like about that question is it does get to something I think really important. I didn't say so much when I was talking about Bentham, though I touched on it. But I think it's really clear during this pandemic. So yeah, there are people who claim to be talking about what we should do in the language of utility, measurement, calculating cost benefit, weighing up different kinds of outcomes, the consequentialists, as they're sometimes called. And then there seem to be people who stand on principle, the libertarians, the believers in freedom, birthright of an English gentleman to go to the pub or whatever it is. And yet, Johnson's a good example of this. Actually, when you scratch beneath the surface of the people who appear to have principles that go against consequences, they're consequentialists too. I don't think at any point the British government, almost anyone in the British government, has thought this was a question of principle. They've just been weighing up different ways of thinking about the consequences. And a lot of the arguments between going off the last year, between different understandings of what lockdown does or doesn't achieve, are all bandied around with figures and numbers and hypotheticals and cost benefits. And even if Johnson did say, let the bodies pile high, he wasn't actually, I think, saying, let the bodies pile high because I believe in something other than life and death. He was saying, I've made one calculation, which goes against the other. And then he was dissuaded by another set of figures. So there are people who are more principle rather than calculation. So someone like Jonathan Sumption, the, the former High Court, Supreme Court judge, who, who's a lockdown skeptic, and he definitely couches his argument more in the language of freedom. But even someone like him, when you scratch it, it's still consequentialist. So his strongest argument, I think, in his own terms against lockdown is that 
if we sacrifice our freedoms now for this, it's a slippery slope. And in future, there will be consequences because next time we will have fewer defences against the sacrifice of our freedoms. It's about the long-term consequences of short-term decisions. And this, in a way, was Bentham's point. His argument was that almost everything that seems to be an argument against utilitarianism, when you rip off the veil, when you look beneath the surface, is seeking to justify itself in consequential terms. And on those rare occasions that you find an argument which has nothing to do with consequences, it's just prejudice. And I think the last years confirmed that in some ways. But there is also another side to it that you can flip that argument on its head, because I think it's also true, and I think Bentham would concur with this, that many of the people who make the biggest performance about banding around numbers and figures and cost-benefit and so on, as though there is only one possible way of interpreting the evidence. So on one side of the lockdown argument, there might be people who say, we have to do this. The medical data insists the evidence requires that we do this. There is no choice. Just as people who use the language of freedom are actually consequentialists, often the most strident consequentialists are just expressing their prejudices and that the, the evidence that they present has been filtered to fit with the outcome that they want. And Bentham's unmasking, I think it does go both ways. So I think he was pretty good at seeing the ways in which the people who stand on principle actually don't believe in those principles. They just have a different understanding of consequences. But also, Bentham's maybe not as insistent on this, but the history of utilitarianism suggests it. The people who stand simply on the evidence are often hiding the fact the evidence has been cherry-picked to suit their prejudices. Next one. Does Butler's position imply that we should assume the middle ground of whatever situation or conflict we find ourselves in and that it must be better than its extremes? Another great question, very different question, very different author. I think what I'd say about that, I talk about this in the in the podcast. What is Samuel Butler doing in Error One? Is it a satire? What what is he trying to what's the point he's trying to make? And I suggest that he's trying to suggest that there is a danger in going to extremes. But I don't think that what follows from that is he's a kind of middle ground thinker. So there's nothing sort of soggy middle about Samuel Butler. He's not, ooh, you know, we need to avoid difficult and dangerous ideas and find some happy compromise. He was, by the standards of his time, Victorian England, he was an iconoclast. He was a deeply unsettling thinker. There's nothing comfy about him. So it's definitely not that kind of middle ground. Avoid the extremes and, and find the comfortable, cosy place in the middle. I think Butler's point is that it's how you hold a position that matters more than what the position is. So you can have a very iconoclastic, potentially dangerous, nihilistic view. I think Butler understood clearly that Darwinian evolution, broadly speaking, all ideas of impersonal evolution in which human beings are just the products of hundreds of thousands of years of processes over which they have, none of us have any control. We are all just surfing a tide of evolutionary change, which is neither forward nor backward. It's not progress, it's random. And we are just the products of it. That's a terrifying, dangerous idea. But there is a way you can accommodate yourself to it, that it doesn't make you a worse person. You can reconcile yourself to that idea. You can be aware that you are just a kind of mote of dust in the godless universe and still somehow find a way to be human. And at the same time, the nicest, blandest, softest, comfiest ideas can be held in a way that makes them dangerous. You can be a 
middle-of-the-road Anglican who believes that the meek shall inherit the earth and turning the other cheek. But you can hold those beliefs in a way that makes you intolerant, and you can be an extremist of -of middle-of-the-road Anglicanism. I think Butler thought he was surrounded by such people. The content of their beliefs was unobjectionable, and yet they were militant in the way that they held them. And in Erewhon, I think the point of the weird satirical inversion where he imagines a society in which the things that we're soft about, health, so we we forgive people their ill health, we look after them, we feel sorry for them, we want to be nice to people who are sick, and we're punitive about moral or criminal failings, so we go after people who commit what we think of as crimes. And he inverts that in Erewhon, so he imagines a society where you punish people for getting consumption, but you send them to a sort of rest home if they're guilty of embezzlement. The point of that is to suggest it's all contingent, it's how you hold the belief, not the content of the belief. So it just happens that we're nice about health and nasty about crime, what we call crime, but it could equally be the other way around. And to be aware of that, to be aware that in any system of social organisation, there is a way in which you can become intolerant. You can believe that it has to be this way, to go back to my answer to the question about Hobbes. You can naturalise things that are artificial and think, well, we have to have a society like this because that's just the way it is. And then you die in a ditch for that belief. That's the thing that's dangerous. So he's not for the middle against the extremes. He's for being aware that whatever you believe, you might think it's nice, but even the nicest beliefs can be held in a nasty way. And even the nastiest beliefs can be held in a, in a way that's livable with. Why does Rawls's veil of ignorance theory not lead directly to a pure socialist or far-left vision of society, rather than something that looks a bit like the centre-left? And what would Rosa Luxemburg say behind the veil of ignorance? So we skipped forward about 100 years, um, but we got Rosa Luxemburg in there too. And there were quite a few questions about this. It's something that comes up a lot. There were a lot of questions about Rawls and, and Nozick. People often ask about Rawls's veil of ignorance. Isn't it itself contrived just to produce the outcome that he wants? And it comes from both ways. So this question is interesting because it comes from a slightly more unusual direction. More often what people say is, hasn't he sort of set it up in a way that makes it sort of social democratic and in favour of a welfare redistributive Scandinavian style state? Whereas in fact, aren't lots of people much more willing to take risks than that? Mightn't it be that behind the veil of ignorance, even if we don't know who we are and whether we're going to be rich or poor, where we're going to be in the hierarchy of our societies, that we might want to take a chance on that and gamble on becoming very wealthy and take a risk on the fact that we might end up broke. And that's the argument that comes from the people who want to push back against what they see as the leftism in favour of something more, to use slightly old-fashioned language, more on the right, or at least more in favour of an untamed free market. But this question is, is asking it the other way around and saying, hasn't he set it up in a way that makes too many concessions to the workings of a tamed market? And mightn't people behind the veil of ignorance actually choose for something more communist? Mightn't they think that the best outcome, if you really don't know who you are, is something radically egalitarian? And I think Rawls has two answers to that. He admits that it is a contrivance. He admits that the veil of ignorance, the back and forth of what he called reflective equilibrium was designed to achieve an outcome that he thought we could all live with, which in a way was a slightly middle of the road social democracy. But in response to the the radical egalitarians, he would say, first of all, that his principles of justice prioritise freedom, liberty. The first principle is about the maximum freedom consistent with the same amount of freedom for all. And that therefore the first thing that people behind the veil of ignorance would want to secure is not material benefit, but to be secure against arbitrary forms of rule. 
And I think he would say that the other thing that people tend to forget is behind the veil of ignorance, you are ignorant about who you are, but you're not ignorant about the basic rules of society, or as he calls them, sociology. The lessons of history, how societies work, how economies tend to work, and the risks, I think, associated with excessive centralization, with too much coercive control. That knowledge is available, but that then raises a different question. I think this is the really interesting question that probably doesn't get discussed that often in relation to rules, because there's this focus on what it would be like to be a person who doesn't know who you are. But the other question is, can we agree on the rules of how societies work? Is there such a thing as a kind of settled sociological consensus around basically what is likely to happen under different kinds of political system and that's where Rosa Luxemburg comes in so you can't really say behind the veil of ignorance what would Rosa Luxemburg think because she wouldn't know she was Rosa Luxemburg so she wouldn't know her temperament or her revolutionary instincts or anything else she wouldn't know what gave her pleasure but she would maybe say I don't know I'm Rosa Luxemburg but I don't think these are the rules of sociology I think that actually we should be reading Marx behind the veil of ignorance. That's where we should be looking for our knowledge about how societies work. And this partly depends on historical context. Rosa Luxemburg, certainly, if you took her and her fellow citizens behind the veil of ignorance in 1910, there would be a very different view as to what the consensus was about social progress and sociology to 1970, not least because in the intervening period, you have the evidence of the failures of the Russian Revolution and of attempts to have real communism, whatever that is. So I think the arguments would revolve around that. But it also touches on an aspect of rules that I think is true. So whatever you think about the outcome of, of his argument, there is a technocratic, slightly elitist approach to politics, which is people with their worldviews shaped by who they are need to be neutralized so that you can come to an agreement. But in that situation, the original position, as he called it, the educated elites can inject knowledge, which will be non-controversial. But I think we know that that's not true, that even in a situation of ignorance about who we are, social knowledge, knowledge about how societies works is always controversial. There will always be grounds to contest it. And though it is true, lots of experiments have been conducted between different polarized partisans groups, say on climate change, environmentalists versus climate skeptics and you inject knowledge into their disputes and they move further apart because they read the knowledge in the light of who they are that wouldn't be true in Rawls's situation I think it still would be true even if we didn't know who we are it's quite a leap of faith to think that there wouldn't be fights about whether this is really knowledge so the veil of ignorance is not total ignorance and there would still be arguments about what makes societies work even if we don't know who we are Nozick has a premise for the justification of property rights, which is from Locke, that there is enough and as good left for others. This might have been questionable when Locke was writing, but was obviously false when Nozick was. Does this not ultimately undermine the theory? Yeah, great question. And, and often noted about Nozick that he just starts by saying, let's assume Locke, who I don't talk about in this series or the last series, let's assume Locke was right about rights and property and the ways in which if we mix our labour with something, it becomes ours. So long as there's enough to go around, an argument from the 17th century, assuming, among other things, quite a lot of land, quite a lot of freedom for people to find a place where they can mix their labour with the land. And in a crowded, complicated, overlapping, shrinking world, it seems not just out of date, but to come from a million years ago. So if so, how can Nozick say we start here? I think Nozick would say, first of all, it's 
he's starting there because we have to start somewhere. And the, the core claim that Locke makes about people's rights to their persons and the things that their persons are most intimately connected with is hard to dispute, even if you strip out the context. But we could still dispute it. I think many followers of Nozick, many libertarians, and this includes people who are strongly influenced by another sort of libertarian thinker I talked about in the last series, Hayek, have often said, well, people are always saying that we've run out of stuff, that there isn't enough to go around, that we've reached peak this, peak that, peak food, peak oil, peak air, peak water. But we never do run out. And that history suggests that at the points where we think we're going to run out, a free market, a market in which people can make decisions on the basis of property rights, will innovate a solution to the problem. So there is, in the Nozick tradition, a real scepticism about the idea that we have run out. But actually, I'm not one of those people. And I think, in many respects, the question is right. We have reached a point where it's ridiculous to think that the structures of property in the world that we live in now are such that people can sort of find a way around and out to the space where they can do what the property owners can do and find something to mix their labor with. The world is too crowded, too complicated and too small. But that then points to the other side of Nozick, which is there is a potential radical version of the argument which goes against that free market libertarianism, which says, but if we have found ourselves in a world where actually these property relations do limit basic rights and justice in his term, then we have to undo them. We almost have to go back to the beginning. As I said in the in the talk on Nozick, he's not going to redistribute in a Rawlsian welfareist way, but he might well say that we've got to give the land back to the people it was taken from, which means we've got to go all the way back to the beginning of the American story to when it was expropriated from Native Americans, to the point where to be a Native American now is not to have the land to live the life that you want to live. And that, in a way, is much more radical than Scandinavian-style welfare democracy. And Nozick himself flirted with it a bit, but you can certainly get from Nozick the idea, if we take that seriously, actually, it requires much more unwinding and undoing of property relations than anything that you would get from rules. Again on Nozick, is the idea of plugging into the pleasure machine dismissed too easily? People are often actually trying to plug into a machine that distorts or removes them from reality with drugs, booze, VR machines and so on. If the experience machine could fashion the perfect life for you, including the idea of challenges to overcome, personal growth, the feeling of reality, etc., wouldn't it be irrational not to plug into it? Why is our feeling of reality so important? So a few questions asked about this, and I didn't really talk about the experience machine or the pleasure machine when I was talking about Nozick, but it's one of the things he's best known for, this idea that actually we wouldn't want to have a world that was faked for us but felt better. There's something about our autonomy and our personal identity that transcends mere experience, and it's a way of arguing against the idea that it's possible to contrive using whatever powers are available a better life if that also means giving up on our identities. And many people have been sceptical about this. People often find themselves thinking about this. If you're living through a miserable experience, if life is tough for you, wouldn't you rather just plug into a machine that made it go away, even if it meant giving up at some level on your identity or autonomy? And a lot of this is to do with temperament. And people fundamentally differ on this question, much more, I think, than maybe Nozick allowed. And many people aren't nearly as sceptical as he was about the idea of just plugging in, tuning out, and then waking up in a world that's better than the one that we live in. Who cares if it's made up? Maybe it's all made up. Maybe we're all in the matrix. I don't know. I'm agnostic on this. I'm not sure what I think. You can go round and round in circles. And it is certainly true, as the question suggests, that this is becoming maybe a more acute question than it was when Nozick wrote, because there are all these ways in which 
we are plugging into machines to give us pleasurable experiences. I think we all probably, or most of us have a suspicion that we don't want to plug in in a way that means we are giving power to the the machines or the owners of the machines. And there's an always a nagging suspicion that however good it is, the thing that we can never secure is our ability to exit. And if there is no exit, how can we be sure that these fake experiences, pleasurable as they are, won't in the long run wear on us? I don't know, but I, I think in a way the more interesting version of the question, and I think of it as the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind version, which is not so much a pleasure machine where you can plug in to guarantee nice, utilitarian, pleasurable outcomes. But what if there are a machine that could just take away the bad stuff, sort of memories, say, wipe out unpleasant memories, wipe out feelings of guilt or remorse, carefully calibrated by you, you use your autonomy, you use your identity to sort of cherry pick the version of yourself that you want to be where you've just taken the edge off the stuff that keeps you awake at night. Again, I think a lot of people would be wary of that because they think it would take the edge off what it means to be human. But it's not beyond the realms of possibility that we're going to be entering into that world soon, a world of all the wonders that we're promised through technology from genetic engineering to never having to work again. But tinkering with human memory, just adjusting it, I think a lot of us instinctively feel we won't go down that road, just as we instinctively feel we won't do plastic surgery, all the things that we say we'll never do. Who knows when it's available? Who knows? Is the sort of hypocrisy discussed by Schlar different from the one which Nietzsche thinks is so awful? Um, yes, it is different. So I finish with Schlar on hypocrisy. I don't think hypocrisy probably is the word for what Nietzsche is thinking of. So it's true that Nietzsche is excoriating about the double standards of civilised life, particularly of modern Christian values and virtues. Our belief that somehow we are living up to a version of of a Christian faith which just overlays the fact that we are human and to be human is to push really hard against that. We think we're kind and we're cruel. We think that we're generous and we're we're not. We think that we're civilised, but underneath it all, we are still human. And to be human is to want to break out from all that. But hypocrisy seems like too tame a word for that. The Christian kings of the medieval world who preached the gospel and boiled people alive in oil to call them hypocrites seems it just sort of feels like a category mistake almost. There's something more going on there. Whereas what Schlar is talking about is common or garden hypocrisy, the sort of double standards of modern civilized life that we're all as individuals at some point going to have to not practice what we preach, that we're all going to find ourselves saying things that we can't live up to and that we need to tolerate that. And so hers is a liberal argument for a form of toleration. Nietzsche's is an argument for a kind of truthfulness. But also I think Nietzsche is not thinking so much about personal hypocrisy, the, the individuals who say one thing and do something else. But he's thinking about systems of thought. He's thinking about entire social constructs. 19th century European life, for him, is the thing that's hypocritical. So it's, if it's going to be that word, it has to be on that scale. It's a whole way of being that is not being true to itself. It's not just an individual. And that connects to the fact that Schlarr, I think, assumes that the hypocrite is in some sense the knowing hypocrite. To be a hypocrite is to know that you're not living up to your own standards. But Nietzsche, the thing that he's really railing against is the idea that we have even lost sight of the fact that this is what we're doing. We are so deep behind the veil that we can't even see it anymore. The hypocrite knows that he or she is wearing a mask. Nietzsche's worry is that we've completely lost sight of the fact that we are all just leading these masked lives. 
So finally, a few questions about the relationship between the history of ideas and the present. And the first one is this, on Rousseau abandoning his children. If possible, I'd like to hear a bit more about your thoughts on how to approach the work of people who seem to us abhorrent in other aspects. Yeah, it's a it's an incredibly difficult question. I think there are two ways of thinking about it. So sometimes these people think of Rousseau and abandoning his children. So sometimes the complaint that's made about writers in the history of ideas is that they are hypocrites. That when you know about the life, you realise they had some grand vision, but they didn't live up to it. I mean, actually, Nozick is a case in point. There was, I remember a newspaper story about him when he was alive, that the great libertarian was nonetheless working his way through the courts to try and secure some kind of complaint against someone else's use of their property. And that actually, when you scratch people, you discover they're often nothing like the person they pretend to be when they're acting out as a philosopher. So there's the hypocrisy question, but like Schlar, I think we should broadly be tolerant of hypocrisy. Who can live up to their own standards? The Rousseau one is different because Rousseau wasn't a hypocrite in the, the discourse. He's clear that he he believes what he did, which is he doesn't believe in the family. He doesn't believe you have any special ties to your children. He doesn't believe that you owe anything under a, a conventional family relationship. And in some ways, that's harder to deal with. I mean, he actually thought it and lived it. And I don't know what the answer is except to say this is really unhelpful but you can discover things about writers and then when you read the book it kind of puts you off you feel oh god now that I know that I can sort of see through this this book is a piece of self-justification or this book is a working out of someone's issues as they say but I think with the books in this series one of the reasons these are such great books is they transcend that I'm only speaking for myself here but even when you know even when you know Schmidt was a Nazi was to become a Nazi in full awareness of that, it creates a kind of queasy feeling about some of his writing and particularly around questions of race. There are things that one would recoil from. And yet the book doesn't feel worthless because the ideas somehow speak for themselves. And the only test for it really is in the reading. And I'm not saying that my reading of these books is in any sense the way that other people should read them. People might read them differently. Some people might read these books and knowing about the people, knowing about the lives, the values, the personal behavior, feel that the book crumbles and the ideas are tainted. That's the test, though. The only test for it is by seeing whether it makes the book fall apart. I don't think you can judge it in advance. Even with Schmidt, even knowing that the man became a Nazi, the only test for it is to read the books he wrote before he was a Nazi and to ask yourself as the reader the question, is there still something of value in these books? It can't be judged before you read the books. Depressing to have to ask the question, but is great philosophy, terrible politics, a pattern? In a way, but that's just because politics is hard and most politics is not terrible, but a lot of politics goes wrong. There's nothing special about sort of philosophical politics. And attempts to apply some of these ideas, I mean, Rousseau's ideas did, in some people's hands, lead to pretty disastrous outcomes. Rosa Luxemburg, she wanted something that never came about. I don't think I'd want particularly to live in Samuel Butler's world. I don't think I'd want particularly to live in Robert Nozick's world. So yeah, there is a definitely a gap. But that's partly because I think it would be a mistake to read these books as guides to anything. Works of political philosophy are not blueprints for how to do politics. They are more like novels or works of fiction in that they're meant to broaden the mind to kind of give us imaginative resources to make us question our own judgments, to make us think about how contingent everything is, to make us wonder who we really are and how prejudiced we are. They don't tell Boris Johnson how to govern the United Kingdom, any of these books. I don't think they would tell any politician what to do. And that would always be a mistake to see the history of ideas as a template 
which can be turned into a guide to action. But I do think that these books don't necessarily produce bad politics. And it is partly a question of how you read them, of temperament, of what you're looking for. It would be a mistake for any one to turn a work of philosophy into a constitution or a manifesto, even the communist manifesto. But it's more, in a way, what these ideas do when they settle in other contexts, with other thoughts, with other imperatives, including maybe the need to make a political choice. The book doesn't tell you what to do, but you might make a different choice once you've read the book. And finally, what are your thoughts on decolonizing the curriculum? Can outdated views in philosophy ever be reformed to reflect the changing moral standards of society? Another very important question, and another one I haven't really got an answer to. So I'll say a couple of things. So I'm conscious that the both of these series are Western-centric. They're not exclusively, it's not all dead white men, but it's within a broadly European tradition of thought, which is also the tradition of thought that coincided with the era of European imperial and colonial expansion and rule with the many terrible consequences that that produced in other parts of the world. And some of these ideas, some of these writers were complicit in that. And I haven't focused on that. I did more in the last series talking about Fanon and Gandhi than in this series. And in this series, I was more interested in a sense, in a set of ideas that come out of a Western tradition that is itself under huge pressure in the early 21st century. I'm partly interested in these ideas, not because I think they're triumphalist and dominant, but because I think they so obviously have a limited shelf life for all of their grandiose claims. And I hope some of that came across on decolonizing the curriculum. So I definitely think that there's a broader canon than this. And I suppose this is an opportunity to plug the event that I'm doing with Pankaj Mishra, when you hear this, if you hear it when it comes out, there's still an opportunity to sign up and get a ticket for an event I'm doing at 7pm UK time on Tuesday the 11th of May, where Pankaj Mishra and I will be talking about this canon. So he, Indian writer, novelist, essayist, has written widely about people like Rousseau and Nietzsche and, and interpreted contemporary Indian society through their ideas. But he's also been very critical of the narrowness of this kind of canon. And he's going to be talking about the many ways in which there's a richer array of political ideas out there outside of the the European Western tradition. And I'm clearly aware that I haven't reached out to that. I don't think I believe in every writer like this having to be plugged into the story of imperial oppression before we can think about their thought. I think it's possible to talk about these writers in a whole variety of ways. So I don't believe in every classic text in this tradition having to come with a health warning. I think we should read these books for ourselves. But I do believe, and I'm very aware of the fact, that this history of ideas that I've told across two series, so 24 authors and books now, 25, Marx and Engels are two people. Those 25 people are not a representative sample of global thought. They're just not. But I still think there's a lot to be said about the ways in which these ideas have shaped the world we live in and the ways in which these ideas may themselves now be running out of time. Thank you very much for all of your questions. Do please join us in our regular slot on Talking Politics every Thursday. And if you'd like to support Talking Politics and History of Ideas, please do sign up for Talking Politics Plus, which you can do by following the link with this podcast. It's time for a break from History of Ideas for now, but we'll let you know as soon as the next series is on the horizon. Thank you for listening. <laughs>